Well, as we come to God's word this morning, we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 8. And verses 4 to 8 really do focus on this reality that in Jesus Christ, we are living stones. And if we're living stones, that means that we've come together to be a spiritual house. And so we're going to look at what that means. So Emily will come and read for us from, uh, from 1 Peter 2. Uh, and then Nicholas will come and read for us from, from Isaiah 56. And Isaiah 56 is one of these great Old Testament promises that talks about one day God will have a people for himself that will be a, a holy priesthood. And that's something that Peter also mentions in his letter. So we'll see that from Isaiah. Next, Pat will come up and read for us from John six thirty-five to 40, which is just a great message of Jesus welcoming us to come to him. And that fits into the message of 1 Peter, because there Peter says that we're only built into the spiritual house as we come to Jesus. And so John 6 is reminding us to come to Jesus. And then lastly, Jen will come up and read for us from Colossians 1, which will remind us of the great transformation that happens when we come to Jesus, which again is reiterated for us in 1 Peter. So let's listen to the word of God being read for us now. Emily, if you want to come on forward. 1 Peter 2, 4-8 As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God throughout through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So honor, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. Isaiah 56, verses 6 through 8. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. John 6, 35 through 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but I raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Colossians 1, verses 21 through 23. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 
if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Well, there's a story that is pretty uh, popular in business books, but I think it's very appropriate to the passage that we have this morning. Uh, And it's the story of three builders, and it illustrates the importance of doing your work with purpose or doing your work with some kind of end vision or goal in mind. And the way the story goes is uh, supposedly after the great fire of London in 1666, there was a famous architect, Christopher Wren, uh, that was going through the city of London to observe some of the building projects that were then being undertaken to rebuild the city after this great fire. And he noticed a, a cathedral under construction and he saw three bricklayers all working side by side to, to build this cathedral. And he saw that they were working at, at different speeds and, uh, and he was wondering why this difference was taking place. And so he went up to the first bricklayer and he said, sir, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm laying bricks. I have to feed my family. So that's what I'm doing. I'm laying bricks. And he went to the person who was working right next to him and he said, sir, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm building a wall. It's going to be part of this building. That's what I'm doing. And then he went to the third builder who was doing the most excellent and the fastest work of them all. And he said, what are you doing? And he said, sir, I am building a cathedral to exalt God. And so what this parable, so to speak, illustrates for us is what a difference it makes to understand the big picture of what you're doing, right? If, if your only vision of what you're doing in the moment of laying bricks is that, well, I'm just laying bricks, I'm trying to feed my family, you're likely to not find much joy in that work, right? To see much purpose in it, to do it with real excellence because you're just kind of trying to do the bare minimum to make it by. If, on the other hand, you can have the vision of the, the last man in that story, that you're building this great cathedral to glorify God, even if your purpose in it is very small, Nevertheless, that gives you much more passion for the work, does it not? It gives you much more zeal, energy to see it completed. And that's very much the purpose of Peter in our text this morning. As he is writing to these Christians, he wants them to see the big picture of just what God's church is, the big picture of what God is accomplishing. So that even though they might be very discouraged by just their day-to-day circumstance, by the opposition and persecution that they're facing, nevertheless, they will be able to look to this grander scope of what God is doing. And when they see the grander scope, they'll be able to look past the daily suffering that they experience and look to the great things that God is accomplishing. Now, in order to set up this passage this morning, because it is such kind of a a grand vision, I actually want to come at this passage by looking back to the very beginning of 1 Peter and kind of seeing where we've come thus far. Because I think, in a sense, everything in 1 Peter up to this point is kind of climaxing in this moment that we're in right now. And then Peter is going to make a transition after this to some other things. So, if you have your Bibles open, just go back to the very first page of this letter that Peter has written to these elect exiles, and I want us to see some of the structure that's in place. So in verses 1 and 2, Peter sends his greetings. He says who he's writing to, and notice in verse 1-1, we're going to come back to this in just a little bit. He says to those who are elect exiles, to those who are elect exiles. And this is a very important concept for Peter and to people that he's writing to. He's saying, yes, you are exiles. Yes, you probably feel like exiles, people who've been kicked out of your homes, but you are elect. You are chosen 
by God. So he calls them these elect exiles, this great glory on the one hand of being elect and this great curse on the other hand of being exiles. This is who he's writing to. And again, this is critical context to understand our passage this morning. Then in verse 3, he starts to recite the glories that we have been called to as those who believe in Christ. So 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Do you hear how just over and over again in those verses, Peter is lifting up for them the greatness of what has been accomplished in Jesus Christ, this great inheritance that they have, this great joy that they have, that even the the suffering that they are experiencing now is really just preparing them for praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying everything that God has done is for your good. Do you see how glorious this is? Then, starting in verse 10 and going to verse 12, he even outlines how critical, how special this moment in history is that they're experiencing. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So he's saying all the prophets, all of the history of redemption that has happened has now come to climax in your time, in the good news that you have heard. This is what God has been about all all along. So again, be excited. See how amazing this is. That all these things that even the angels long to look into, now you have been able to see. And so he's just outlined the glorious salvation that God's accomplished. And now in verse 13, he's going to shift to some more of the practical application. How are we supposed to live in light of this? And so in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now pause there for one moment. Notice again the main command there is set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's essentially commanding us to lift our eyes, right? To not look at the mundane day-to-day, but to lift our eyes and set our hope fully on the grace that will be revealed. And that's exactly what he's done, right? All the way from verses 3 to verses 12. He's tried to lift their eyes, let them see the hope that God has in store for them. And then, right after doing that, He tells them again, prepare your minds for action, be sober-minded, set your hope fully on these things. And then he goes on into this practical application. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written... 
You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So do you hear all those calls to action to be holy, to live in fear, to not live in the futile ways that you used to live in, but now live in light of this resurrection that Christ has so that your faith and your hope are in God? And then in verse 22, he's going to shift from what could be thought of as a more individual calling, this calling to holiness, to live in fear, these sort of things, to a very clearly corporate calling. So in verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good." So this is where we've come so far up to this point in 1 Peter. We've seen this glorious hope that we have in Jesus Christ, the amazing salvation that God has worked. And then we've seen the most essential aspects of our calling as Christians to live holy lives, to live in fear, to love one another. But again, I imagine that as the readers of Peter's letter are going through this, they're still feeling very discouraged. They're still feeling like all of these things are a very high calling, a very hard calling, and they can think very readily in their minds of many examples of why what Peter is telling them to do is mostly unpleasant, is mostly difficult. And as we go on through the letter of 1 Peter, we'll see more clearly some of the opposition, some of the persecution that these believers have been facing. But it is that opposition from the world that most clearly hinders their walking in all of these things. And I think that's why Peter is continually trying to lift their eyes to these eternal realities so they don't get bogged down in the here and now. Because yes, the here and now is going to be demoralizing. The here and now is not always going to be pleasant or fun. But when we lift our eyes up to the heavenly places, then we see the glorious things that we are called to. And we say, okay, even if right now is really hard, I can hold on tight and I can persevere to the end to this great reward that is coming. And so with that in mind, Peter now shifts to verse 4 of chapter 2. And again, he's reiterating this corporate identity that we have. He's thinking especially of how challenging this all must sound for the people that he's writing to. And he wants to lift their eyes again to the glorious hope of the corporate identity that we have in Jesus Christ. And so look now at verse 4 with me. It says, As you come to him, That's Jesus Christ. 
And notice from the end of verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, so Peter here is calling Jesus Christ the Lord. He's saying that Jesus Christ is good, the Lord is good. And then verse 4, as you come to him, as, as you come to Jesus Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Now just pause there. Why would Peter specify that about Jesus Christ? Specify that he has been rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Well, he's saying this because that's exactly how they feel. They are being rejected by men. And again, as they are rejected by men, they're finding it increasingly difficult to walk in obedience to the Lord. And so he's reminding them, as you come to him, who are you coming to? You're coming to the one who himself was rejected by men. But guess what? Even though he was rejected by men in the sight of God, he was chosen and precious. And so there too, he is sending a message to these recipients of his letter. He's saying, you yourselves may feel rejected by men. But even when you feel rejected by men, know that in the eyes of God, you are chosen and precious. Again, this is 1-1, right, where he called them elect exiles. He said, you have been chosen by God. You are precious in the sight of God, even though you are rejected by men. You are exiles. You've been cast out of your homes. But understand this eternal reality that you are chosen and precious. All right, so what's the significance of this? You've come to him. We've come to Jesus as a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Well, this is what it means. Verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So that's what it's all building towards, is that statement there in verse 5. The statement that we are a spiritual house, that we are a chosen priesthood, and that we are a holy priesthood, that we offer spiritual sacrifices. But then again, Peter has in mind how difficult this is, and so he wants to make clear that the difficulty that we experience has really been the plan of God all along. And so he quotes from the Old Testament now. He says, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Hear those words again, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And then the start of verse seven, so the honor is for you who believe. The honor is for you who believe. So Peter's saying that even from Old Testament times, God had a plan to lay this stone in Zion, to build this building on top of this stone, and then all who believe in this stone have honor. This honor is for you who believe. But then, what about the rest? What about those who don't believe? That's the second half of verse 7. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That is Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ was the one who was rejected. He was the stone that the builders rejected, and he himself has become the cornerstone. And then verse 8, and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, or as they were appointed to do. Meaning God himself has appointed for Jesus Christ, 
for Jesus Christ himself to be the stone that is either a stone unto salvation, a stone unto a beautiful temple of the Lord's building, or a stone that's going to trip you up so that you fall and you are destroyed. Jesus Christ is this dividing line. And so when we go into the world and we see that in the world there is indeed a dividing line, there are some people who hate us, who oppose us, there are some people who do not want to hear about Jesus Christ, we should not be surprised, right? Because Jesus is a stumbling stone. He has been set up to cause the stumbling of some. And they will stumble and they will fall because God has appointed for them to do that. And yet, the hope is that even as many as there may be that stumble upon the stumbling stone, that stumble upon Jesus Christ, there will be others that believe. And when they believe, what happens? Well, for them, Jesus Christ becomes this precious cornerstone, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And when Jesus Christ is this chosen and precious cornerstone, then we ourselves can be built into this beautiful structure that God is building around Jesus Christ. Those words at the very beginning of verse 4 do modify all these verses that come after when it says, as you come to him. As you come to him, it is as we come to Jesus Christ that we become this spiritual house that God is building. Jesus Christ is the foundation of this house in every way. Just as Jesus Christ is that first living stone and is the cornerstone, so as we contact him, we ourselves become living stones. Just as Jesus Christ is this one who's rejected by men, when we come to Jesus Christ, we are rejected by men. Just as Jesus Christ is this one who is chosen and precious in the sight of God, we, when we come to him, are chosen and precious in the sight of God. Just as Jesus is the cornerstone when we build upon him, we become a spiritual house. So in every way, we are united to Jesus, and as we are united to Jesus, we take up on ourselves the character of Jesus Christ. And the character of Jesus Christ that Peter is especially mentioning here is this character of Jesus as a cornerstone, as a chosen and precious stone. Now consider this image for just a moment, that Jesus is a living stone. First consider the idea that we are stones themselves, these stones made for building. We would maybe call them bricks today, but they could also just be stones that have already been cut and ready to laid into a house. But it's not a very majestic title, is it, to be called a brick, right? <laughs> to say, you're a stone, you're You're ready to go into a house, right? None of us like that identity. It doesn't seem like a very exalted identity. And again, I think this is part of why Peter uses it here, because the people that he's writing to, they don't feel very special, do they? They feel like they're stones. They feel like they're bricks. That's how they're being treated by the world around them. That's how they feel. They feel like they are just a big heap of rocks. And so they don't feel very special. But then, Peter does this wonderful thing by adding this adjective to the word stone. They are not merely stones. They are not merely bricks. 
They are living stones. They are living bricks. And so, beloved, what God has done for us is that even though, yes, we don't have anything special in us, in and of ourselves, we are merely bricks, right? If you look at a wall made of brick, no one brick stands out, right? A brick is just a brick. They all look the same. And in one sense, that's all we are. We're just bricks. But what God has done in Jesus Christ is he's transformed us. He's transformed us mere bricks, mere stones, into living bricks, into living stones. So no longer are we merely these humble things only fit to be put together and look all plain and ordinary. Rather, we are these vibrant, living things by the power of Jesus Christ working in us. As we come to Jesus Christ, we come to know the Lord of life. Jesus who has life in himself. Jesus says that I have life in myself and I give it to whomever I desire. And so as we come to Jesus, Jesus gives us life. We who formerly were just dead bricks now come to life ourselves. So that the structure that we are building is no ordinary structure It doesn't look like other organizations in the world. The building that is the church doesn't look like other buildings in the world. No, it's much more beautiful, much more majestic and transcendent precisely because the life of Christ is working in us so that he who is the living stone, again, verse four, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, You yourselves like living stones. And so this is our privilege, beloved. On the one hand, yes, we understand that we are mere bricks, that we are humble bricks. But on the other other hand, we understand that we have been made alive in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we are suitable for glorious purposes. And we can do things that no other brick can do by the power of Jesus Christ within us. Another thing about this image of being living stones or living bricks is that a brick really has no usefulness in isolation, right? Well, I found maybe some different odd jobs that you can use a brick for, you know, to weigh things down or stuff like that. But for the most part, a brick is no good if you only have one brick, right? If you want to build anything, you need a lot of bricks. If you want to build a house a wall, even if you want to build a little outdoor fire pit, something like that, you need a big stack of bricks. And so the other part of this image that Peter is calling our attention to is that when we are saved, when we become living stones, we are not saved to then go off into isolation to find our own calling, to find our own purpose, to work out our own salvation in isolation from others. Rather, Because we are bricks, because we are stones, we are going to find our usefulness, we are going to find our purpose as we come into the house of God, as we come into the spiritual house. That's what living stones are for. That's what stones are for in general. They are for building. They are for a larger structure. If stones were just scattered all around across a field, it wouldn't mean anything. It wouldn't do any good. But when someone comes along and orders these bricks together, then they become something. They become, become something beautiful, something useful. And so it is with us, beloved. When we are saved, we come to Jesus Christ 
Jesus Christ makes us alive, and then we're wondering, well, what is it that I'm supposed to do? What is it that God wants me to do? Where do I fit into God's plan? Well, the number one way you fit into God's plan is you become a part of a spiritual house. That's what a brick is for. And as you become part of the spiritual house, then you see more of what you are supposed to do. We have the 1 Corinthians 12 reality, right? Of God sending his spirit into his church so that each one has a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. So each brick has this life being generated in it by God in a slightly different way so that when they come together, they create this beautiful living thing. But again, if you're out in isolation, then how are you to know what that manifestation of the spirit is? If you don't know any kind of role in the church, any kind of function you have for building up others, then how do you know your function at all? And so when we are living stones, we are humble and yet glorified, and we find our true purpose in being built up, as verse 5 says, into this spiritual house. Into this spiritual house. Now, I think Peter could have used the word temple here instead of house, but he chose to use the word house instead. And I think the reason why he used the word house is not so much because we are distinct from the temple in the Old Testament. The temple was the dwelling place of God. Not so much because we are distinct from that, because we now are the dwelling place of God, but because in this New Testament reality, no longer is the dwelling place of God a building, right? I'm thankful that we have this lovely room to worship in. I'm thankful for the new paint and all these things. But no matter how beautiful this structure is, no matter how wonderful it is, it is just a building. It cannot have God dwell in it just owing to its physical space, right? In the Old Testament, they thought that that's what the temple was for. They thought that the temple was where God dwelt on the earth. And we do see a couple times in the Old Testament of God validating this, right? Coming down in a cloud of glory and dwelling in the temple. But the Old Testament also makes clear that God is too big. He is too majestic. He is too wonderful to dwell in a house made by human hands, right? Even to whatever extent the the glory of the Lord may have existed in the temple, The reality was that the Lord still extended far beyond the temple. And so we now, in the New Testament, in the fulfillment of the time that all these prophets spoke to, we get to experience the reality of the Lord not living in a structure made by human hands, but living in us, the very image bearers of God, the living stones. God is making us into a spiritual house. Beloved, I believe there is something spiritually significant to the people of God coming together as we are this morning. As the living stones come together, we form a structure. When we form a structure, we form a place where the Spirit of God comes to dwell. That's why I pray every Sunday morning for more than an hour that, Lord, would you come and would you fill this place as your people come together? Again, not because there's anything special about this building or this location, but because the people of God, the living stones, are gathering together. And as the living stones gather together, we form this spiritual house 
so that the glory of God can come and dwell in our midst. One of the beautiful things, though, about verse 5 is that Peter does not stop at the image of a spiritual house. He actually gives us two more images, right? To be built up as a spiritual house, but then he says, to be a holy priesthood. So not only are we the temple, not only are we the house, we are also the priests in the temple. But then he doesn't even stop there. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we are the priests who are making the sacrifices in the temple. This is the fulfillment. This is the completion of all of these Old Testament systems of sacrifice, of priesthood, of tabernacle, of temple. This is where it all comes together, beloved, right here in our midst. We ourselves being a spiritual house, being the temple of God. We ourselves being a holy priesthood. And as we are a holy priesthood, what do we do but offer spiritual sacrifices? Now, what are these spiritual sacrifices? I think John Calvin had it right when he said that the spiritual sacrifices are all the religious duties that God calls us to. When we praise God, we're offering a spiritual sacrifice When we pray, we're offering a spiritual sacrifice. Maybe the most clear text of all, though, is Psalm 51 that says that the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So the true sacrifice of God is a heart that is offered up to the Lord in brokenness and contrition. This is the essence of the spiritual sacrifice that we offer. We come together, and as we come together, we all confess together, Lord, none of us is good enough in ourselves. All of us have sinned and fallen short of your glory and need your mercy, need your grace. And as we do that, we are offering ourselves as a spiritual sacrifice to the Lord. Indeed, the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 says that we ourselves are living sacrifices. That we place ourselves upon the altar, as it were, and become in our persons a sacrifice to God, asking that God would wholly burn up our lives, wholly burn up ourselves in an offering of praise and worship to Him so that He can be glorified around us, so that He can be glorified in our neighborhoods and in the nations. This is the sacrifice that we offer to the Lord. But beloved, all of these things are themselves done in union with Jesus Christ as we come to him. We don't come to Jesus Christ and then Jesus Christ somehow sends us out away from him to be a spiritual house or a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. No, Jesus himself is part of us as the structure. Again, this quotation I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. So Jesus himself is the stone that makes up the most precious, the most important stone in our house. He is the chief cornerstone. Jesus is also the perfect high priest, right? When we go to the book of Hebrews, we see how Jesus is the one high priest who finally entered into the holy of holies in the temple. And rent the veil so that now all of us can enter in as priests. And so even as we pursue this identity of being a holy priesthood, we only pursue it in union with Jesus Christ. 
And as we ourselves offer spiritual sacrifices and ask that God would make our lives spiritual sacrifices, we recognize that Jesus Christ is the first and the final sacrifice. Amen? He is the one that came first and that truly offered his life up to God the Father so that we ourselves could be redeemed as he hung upon the cross and welcomed all to come to him because of the perfection of his sacrifice. And so as we come together as the church now, beloved, as the spiritual house, we come together in Jesus Christ, who is truly the dwelling place of God, who is the temple of God. And we come together to be holy priests because Jesus himself is the great high priest. And we come together to offer spiritual sacrifices because Jesus himself is the perfect sacrifice. And so our hope for performing any of this, our hope for completing any of this, is in our union with Jesus Christ, is in our knowing of Jesus Christ. The more we know him, the more we love him, the closer we are to him, the more we will know our identity as a spiritual house, the more we will know our status as priests, and the more we will know those sacrifices that we must offer up to God through him. And so, beloved, if I could have one plea to you this morning, it would be the plea that Peter makes here. Come to him. Come to Jesus Christ. As you come to him, you will know the majesty of being this spiritual house, of being not only this physical temple, this structure that existed on a hill in Jerusalem, but of being a spiritual household, of being a family of God, where when we come together, the very presence of God is in our midst. And we know that thing that we were created for above all things, fellowship with God, knowing God. And so come to Jesus. Become part of this spiritual house. Become part of this holy priesthood. Offer your life as a spiritual sacrifice to God. And beloved, if you do that, you will not be cast out. As we read in the book of John, Jesus welcomes all who come to him. If we want to be a living stone, there's only one way to come to him. And that is as a dead stone first, right? (laughs) We can only come to him as dead stones. And when we come to him, he makes us alive. If we want to be a holy priest, we can only come to him when we are defiled and let him make us holy. And if we want to be a spiritual sacrifice, we can only come to him when we are unspiritual and have him pour his spirit into our hearts. And so, beloved, if you feel defiled this morning, if you feel dead and useless, if you feel wholly unspiritual, then go to Jesus. Run to him and he will give you life. He will make you part of this beautiful structure, beloved. And if you don't come to Jesus in that way, if you don't come to him for life, verse 8 does warn that he will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Beloved, I plead with you to not stumble over Jesus Christ this morning. Don't look to him and say, no, 
boring or I've seen a million like him and turn somewhere else. If you do that, you will stumble and fall. But if you come to him and you say, there is a beautiful, precious gemstone, a precious cornerstone, I want to be built upon him, then he will give you life. He will build you into his spiritual house and you will receive the glory, the majesty, the wonder of all that he has to offer in making you a temple and a priest and an offering. Would you pray with me now? Father, we thank you for the glorious plans that you have for us, Lord. That even though we all here, Lord, each one of us, were at one time just dead bricks, you made us alive. That even though all of us here, Lord, were defiled, you, Lord, made us holy. That even though none of us here wanted to be sacrifices to you, Lord, you called us forth in love. Lord, give us eyes right now to see the beauty of King Jesus, I pray. Lord, so that we can be this beautiful temple, this glorious temple that you have destined us to be from the very beginning of time, Lord, the beautiful Garden of Eden that you made, Lord. You want to make this place beautiful again through your church, Lord. Make us beautiful as we look to Jesus Christ. Lord, that we ourselves may know the joy of our salvation and that the world around us may know the wonder of your redemption. God, would you hear our prayers and our pleas now? In Jesus' name.